Kia ora. I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, Waituhi o Tamaki, and you're listening to a session podcast from our 2019 event. A lineup of Māori writers joined forces with multi-instrumentalist Kingsley Malouche for a night of storytelling interwoven with music and inspired by the new book, Purako, Māori Myths Retold. Imagine a sensual retelling of Tane's creation of Hine, Maui as a beleaguered sports star, or an Aotearoa where Whakapapa is downloaded via app. Join Fiti Hiriake, who co-edited Purako with Witi Ihimara, Kelly Joseph, Nick Lowe, Tina Makariti, Paula Morris, and Regan Taylor, who reads for Vancouver-based writer David Geary, for an hour of mythic magic. We hope you enjoy this. Selfish storyteller 
that hoards the pleasure for themselves, that inflicts boredom upon their audience just so their voice is heard. It is, after all, a privilege to be heard, and one not many are allowed. There are always those that will speak for others to take control of the narrative. The stories live through us and us through them. A skilled storyteller will shape the narrative to beguile you, ensnare and bind your attention. Because a story is born and lives in the space between the storyteller and their audience. The storyteller cannot hold the story too tightly to themselves. To live, it must have room to grow. Remember how the gods separated the sky father, Ranganui, from his wife, Papatuanuku, the earth mother. Rangi and Papa held each other in such a tight embrace that their children could not thrive. It is only when Tane Mahuta forced them apart that life could flourish. Is it not the same for a story? It lives in the telling. We live in the telling. But that is telling. We are creatures of words. We are creatures of imagination. We live on the edges of dreams and the margins of thought. We live in the whisper of the page. Does it follow that a story must die as it ends? Or does it live on within you, nestled deep in the folds of your mind? A story, then, is a dangerous thing for the reader to allow yourself to open your mind and your heart to creatures who need you to survive, who need you to live. Ah, but you'll face whatever danger there might be. Your craving for us is that strong. Our relationship is symbiotic, but is it neutral or parasitic? Through these words, we live, we want to be heard, we want to exist again, at least in your mind. We need to tell you our stories so that you'll let us in and we can breathe again. Through stories, you are immortal, a god capable of living 100 lifetimes or more. Through stories, you can achieve the impossible and travel through time, past, present, future, all able to be lived and felt by you. The lives you can live within a story are endless. The lives you can consume are countless. Perhaps a story can only be told in slivers. No one can perceive the whole, the truth, because is it truly possible for anyone to understand the life of another completely? We will tell you our stories anyway. It is enough for you to have a taste, to run your tongue along the edge of the blade. It is enough for us to get a foothold. Strike from the page all that has been written before. Let the words and letters slip from your mind, pile them upon one another, obliterating their meaning. Their ink bleeds into the white spaces. They become dark and suffocating. Listen closely to the blank, the black, the dark. Let it invade you, colonize you, assimilate to it. This world is dark, and all that there is is darkness, a black, void, blankness. Let it be blank. This is where we start.
The following spring, as the sun's warmth released sweet blossom buds from hibernation and the insects and birds began emerging from their winter nests, Tane was desolate. He came to the soil desperately, but without passion. His orchards suffered, he neglected his stock, his house was left unswept. He no longer gained any joy from hunting, gathering and cooking his meals. Instead, he ate whatever food he found while he worked, fruit, seeds, the occasional hoo-hoo grub. One day after a sun shower, Tane dozed under a tree in his orchard where it was relatively dry. His eyes were half closed, his mind drifting. He thought about all the adventure he'd had in his life, all that he had created on his land but he did so without the pride he was accustomed to experiencing over such thoughts. What is happening to me, he thought. Slowly he became aware of the fantails and the foliage chattering excitedly, the cicada buzzing steadily faster, the tui's call becoming more melodic and enchanting than he remembered. With his eyes fully closed now, the world around him was a riot of fervent sound, each creature vying for the attention of its peers. I am alone, Tani thought. That is the problem. But who did he yearn for? He opened his eyes to the flutter of numerous wings, feathered or dry leaf crisp, clasping talons and searching feelers, buzzing and twittering declarations of love the ardent couplings of all creatures in the canopy. Oh, he thought, oh. And he laughed, for how could it have taken him so long to realize this? He called his mother, asking what he should do about finding a partner. She did not know of any available young woman. Indeed, no women were known in the area at all. She felt for her son, even though she and her husband were separated now, she remembered their time together as the happiest time in their life. You may have to be creative, she told him. Let your imagination guide you. Do you know of the place called Kurawaka? Tainu felt the world tilt for a moment, a path clearing before him. The place his mother had named was the same place he had been visiting all this time. He made his way to the spot he held in such affection all the way beseeching the heavens and earth to help him in his quest. There he fell to his knees and scooped the soil into his arms, bringing it to his face and inhaling deeply. Yes, he thought. Oh God, yes, please let this be it. Then slowly, affectionately, he began to work. At first it was easy. He wanted his creation to be like him, his mirror, his equal. He formed the arms and the legs, the neck, the head, the shape of the torso. Here he took liberty, remembering the various forms he had tried the summer before, adding shape in ways that he had found most pleasing. There were things he did not know or understand, so he let instinct guide him, adding folds, a dimple or two. He was enchanted by the figure that emerged under his fingertips. All that was left was the face of his beloved. That this was difficult. He formed something resembling what he knew of his own features, a nose, two eyes, lips. Touching his face, he realized the features he had molded were softer than his own. He hoped this new person would accept the roughness of his face and body. Laid out before him now, the figure was smooth and rounded like the hills in the far distance. He was at once excited and anxious. He knew of the old magic, how the life force could be shared, how creatures could be brought into being. But he had never tried to make someone like himself before. Who would she be? Would she even want him? Would the magic work? 
His mother had told him to be creative. A leap of faith was required. He opened his mouth, not yet, sh not yet sure of the words, closed his eyes and attempted to find the sound. If he could just find the right note, the words would come. He was sure of it. His voice sounded awkward at first, so unsure, but he was right. After a moment of hesitation, his throat began to hum with vibration, and the chant coursed through him like a powerful shifting tide. This was it. If it didn't work, he would be crushed. He wanted to prolong the moment of anticipation, the moment of not knowing, and then it was time. He leaned over and looked at her dear face, gathered up all the power of the desire inside him, and blew a warm, constant stream of air into her nostrils. He took all of the air in his lungs and blew it into her, sending with it all of his intentions. There was a pause, and then she sneezed. Tihei Modi ora, he whispered. He helped her sit up, break away from the earth beneath her. A layer of soil fell away from her skin, and he could see her in her true form, glistening and alive in the deep red-brown colour of the earth that had formed her. Silent laughter filled him even as tears formed in his eyes. He clasped her to him, pressing his nose against hers so that they could breathe together for a while. She was smiling as she lifted her face to look into his eyes. He felt heat rise to his face. He didn't know where to look. She was here, alive. I'm Hine, she said. I'm so glad you figured it out. I've been waiting for ages. He was stunned. Oh, look at you, she said. You're all skin and bones. Let's make a feast. Time for a celebration, don't you think? Mutu Fridge. 
The day after Maui got out of hospital, Doc, the cowboy's doctor, knocked gently on Maui's basement door. Maui. Maui. You home? Doc heard some heavy shuffling from inside and the lock turning. It opened a crack and from the darkness inside, Maui whispered, Who is it? Doc. Doc who? Doc. Doc from the team. What do you want? Just a... Came to check to see how you're doing, mate. I see you're keeping the lights off like the specialist said, and you weren't answering your phone. Had to turn it off. Loud noises are like bright lights. Doc came in and closed the door quick behind him, pitch black. He clawed his way around the furniture, and they sat on the leather sofas in the dark together. So, how are you feeling? Peaching. Can't move faster than a snail without wanting to spew. Like if I don't balance my head just right, it might fall off. Ah oh well. Takes time, right? Said Doc, holding up a bag. The boys all chipped in for some of your fave food, drinks, tunes and some DVDs. They even got you that Moana movie with the rock in it. It's good. I've seen it with the kids. I can't watch no fucking DVDs. Can't look at screens. The light stabs my eyes. Maui. The club watched the CCTV footage. They saw it all. That was one hell of a jigger chuck. She could be an Olympic javelin thrower with the right sort of coaching. What do you want? I want to say that you shouldn't have been playing the next day if your girlfriend KO'd you the night before. The guys who took you home fessed up said you were totally out of it when they dropped you off here. I was just sleeping. Tired, that's all. Look. You need to ring your agent. They've been trying to get in touch. Are you cutting me? Is that why you're here? Maui, mate. Your bell has been rung too many times. The specialist reckons one more concussion and it could be lights out for good. You'll get a payout. But maybe you should think about going home. Home to what? Um, coaching? I'm sure you're a legend in your hometown. Yeah, I've got to star on the footpath and fielding. Really? Nah. Back there, they just know me as Morris. Morris? Yeah, when I finally got out, I changed my name. So you're not really Maui? Nah. He was just some Maori superhero my nan told me stories about. As a kid, I just wanted to be smart and strong like him. You know, I've come back before. Mate, have you seen the hit the Raiders put on you? No. It was massive. Your signature top knot, it just totally unravels as your noggin snaps back. The monkey who coat-hanged you is up for the judiciary and you'll get six weeks at the least. Oh, will it make the next King Hits DVD? Bound to. Probably be on the cover. You just lay there twitching so they could get the cart out. It was ugly. Not a good look for the NRL. Not with all this talk about headpins and concussions. Mate, you ain't coming back. Don't say that. You know, quite a few of our guys retire and get into security. We could set you up. Shut up. You hear that? Hey? That voice that moaning. Ah, uh, no? Sitting here in the dark, I've been hearing things, this voice mainly, but I can't work out what it's saying. Kind of a chant. You hear that? Um, nah. But your fridge has got a bit of a drone. I think it's my name. She's another reason. Nan? She's another reason I can't go back to friendly fielding. I stole something from her. See, she didn't trust banks, kept her cash and a Griffin's biscuit tin under the bed. And she didn't trust doctors or hospitals because that's where they go to die. She liked the old medicine, but most of the ones who knew all that stuff were gone. 
She had these ingrown toenails and she'd get me to try and clip them and dig out the toe jam. But Jesus, they stank. And she was on the turps to kill the pain and pouring it on her feet too. I just, I just couldn't take it anymore. So I stole her biscuit tin and ran away to Auckland to have a trial with the warriors. I didn't think about it for a long time. Tried not to anyway. And then one day I saw this old queer in a wheelchair on the sideline of a game and I got the guilt. So I rang up my cousin back home. He said they found her with gangrene and they had to cut off her feet and her teeth had gone rotten because she didn't trust the uh, dentist neither. And she had lost some of her jaw, which would be the worst because she could talk up a storm. She'd tell stories of old people trying to get me interested. But I was just a leaguey meathead. Yeah, my poor old Nan. She had the real gift of the gab. But now, according to my cousin, she was sitting in a wheelchair with her stumps begging outside the wharefare. And no one dared mention my name to her. It was so bad that if I was playing on TV, then the whole whānau and anyone who knew me was yelling for the opposition to smash me. So I guess what they wanted, I guess they got what they wanted, eh? You hear that? She's chanting at me now. But I'm koretake, useless. Used to know all that te reo when I was living with her as a kid, but I lost it. Now I just got a few words that come back, but my powers have faded. Now she's probably dead and come to haunt me, call me over to the other side, because I'll be dead soon too. Yeah, mate. That's not good talk, bro, said Doc. In fact, I've come to, um, I've got some pamphlets for you, some reading. I can't turn the light on to read. Well, they're about suicide? Yeah. Are you having any of those... Those sorts of thoughts? Um, nah. Does that make you feel better? Um, it's not about how I feel, isn't it? Don't you want to just be able to say the due diligence on sad sack Mao and then fucked off? Mate, mate, it's not like that. Yes, it is. You've got better things to do than deal with some messed up head case. You've got some young flyers to get up to speed, so fuck off and tell them I'm doing good. That I can't watch their fucking DVD. And you know what? It is okay, really. It's just me, my thoughts all floating around me, like little islands I paddle in and out of in my waka. I don't even have to go to any more boring fucking practices. I don't have to do stupid gut busters and listen to pep talks and pretend I like everyone. And so, let me summarise. You can't go back to fielding, but you need to get out of this basement eventually because the club is paying the rent. Yeah, so where do you think you'll go? Disneyland. I've never been to Disneyland. You sure? Yeah, it's the happiest place on earth. Doc took the groceries to the fridge. When he opened it, the drone noise changed to a higher pitch and he thought he did indeed hear a voice coming from inside the icebox. He couldn't make out any words, but it sounded like some old lady in pain, and they were calling for help, and no one was coming. Doc threw the groceries inside and slammed the door shut.
On the fourth night in the park, something took hold of him. A restlessness like a tug pulling him out of his hollow. A real Ruru, T knew, wouldn't sleep so close to the ground, waiting to get eaten. He clambered out, leaving everything behind and stumbling on ridged roots that in the dark felt like low stone walls. When he tried to get a foothold on the trunk of the tree, his boots slithered and his hands stung, bitten by shards of bark. The tree was alive, of course, he knew that. He'd hauled enough wood in his time, hammered nails into hundreds of boards. But tonight, the tree was a creature, a brute that wanted to throw him off. Chi reached for a branch, stubbing his fingers, and hauled himself up. His feet skidded, and the branch creaked with the wind and his weight. But T steadied himself. Thunder rumbled, and for an instant, the sky was shot through with darting light, just enough to reveal the next branch. He reached for it, his hands ready this time, for the scales of its skin. The higher he climbed, the more the tree rocked and shuddered. Branches thinned, but beyond them, T could see no stars. They were smudged out by clouds as gray and rolling as Rotorua mud. The sky tower, lit red, looked out of focus in the haze, immune to the lightning sparks. Thunder grumbled again, close enough to shake the tree. T reached for the highest branch. It bent towards him like a bow. There was no reason for him to climb the tree like this. His skin was slick with cold rain, and the wind was cutting through his jacket. The lightning jabbed at him, and the thunder was so discontent, so complaining, that it might be the voice of his grandmother. He just couldn't stay huddled in the tree's bowels anymore, trying to make himself disappear. T held his face up to the rain, dizzied by the swirling tumble of clouds. Up here he was exposed, draped across several branches like a too heavy Christmas decoration. The sky was a mystery to him, even on a clear night. How could the ancestors have read its language so fluently? How could they have found answers to anything or paths to anywhere? Above him, dark clouds split and billowed. And when lightning flashed again, T thought he could make something out. It was the face of his grandmother, her eyes wide open, jaw contorting when the cloud shapeshifted into another face, one he didn't recognize. Another face another face, and another, some calm and puffy cheeks like the moon. Others agape and angry, glowering at him from the sky, their faces as angular as scraped skulls. One might be his father, but T wasn't so sure. It was so long since his father died, a knife to the guts in a pub near Khyber Pass thunder crash from the face's mouth and T shook with the force of it, with the anger and fear his father's death had breathed into all of them, T and his brothers, their inheritance nothing but blood on the footpath and the rage of it, the rage. Bastard, he shouted at the clouds, but they were already forming themselves into a new face and then into another, lightning crackling behind their eyes. The sky tower was the tip of a tayaha, pointing into the sky. He didn't know any of these faces, but they must know him. At night, when he was a kid, he used to sit out on the front step of their house, away from the racket and stench of his brothers. He'd stare up at the sky, trying to make sense of it, make sense of the stars, but he'd never known the names of anything. He couldn't crack the code. 
Now the thunder was speaking to him in a way the stars never could. Maybe back then he crept around too much, stayed too close to the ground. Something harder than rain hit him on the arm, then the leg. It couldn't be hail, not in this drizzle. Another sharp ping on his shoulder, and he reached out his hand to grab whatever it was, half expecting a small rock of ice. But it was just a stone, and another stone bouncing off his head. T managed to catch that one as well, though he almost skidded off his branch and scraped his knuckles trying to right himself. Someone was pelting him with stones. Bugger off, he shouted, not looking down. You're going to kill yourself, mate. The voice was a man's, nobody he knew. Lightning will hit you up there. Most of the rough sleepers looked out for each other. That was another thing T had learned. The cloud faces were gone. Now they were just a grey smear on the sky. The thunder's rumble was softer, more distant, moving out to sea. T pocketed the two stones so he'd have his hands free for the descent. He'd take those back to his grandmother's to give to his niece if she was still hanging around. They might be useful for her school project, geology, geography, because they were actual stones, not just pictures on the internet. These she could turn over in her hand and feel how smooth and rounded they were in real life. He'd tell her that there was more to the world than the internet could possibly contain. She needed to put her phone down and maybe climb a tree or climb inside one. He would take his grandmother to the podiatrist. He would fix her shed roof and window with his grandfather's tools. He would make her a walking stick. He would walk all the way out west on the Great North Road to Avondale to see Maria and little Arahuta. If no one would give him a place to sleep, he'd just keep walking towards the great hills and gullies of Waikometi Cemetery. Trees stretched along the ridge there, and when he climbed them, T would see the full sweep of the Waitakere's all the way back to the city. The sky tower would be a distant beacon. He wouldn't bleed to death after a fight like his father. He wouldn't fester and rot like his brothers, smashing doors and windows and people poisoning themselves and everyone they touched. Up in the treetops, the city was his. The stars and the clouds and the thunder were his. T had climbed his way to heaven, one branch at a time, and there was nothing he couldn't do or see or understand. Nothing he couldn't become if he put his mind to it. Nothing that could stop him once he got back on his feet.
The viewers had arrived at the gallery at 7am. Katie had Caden set up the champagne with strawberries, cheese and croissants and ham off the bone cut into delicate slices. They were given their limited edition print and a map to Uunuku's house. There was a buzz in the room, a vibe that was going to be a special day. Katie made a small speech telling everyone to expect to see aesthetic beyond their comprehension. Their world would shift, open up. There was a shuttle on offer, but still many people walked. A few drove. They gathered quietly in groups around the cottage. Anticipation made many of them rock back and forth on their feet, shifting weight. Katie melted into the background and watched the audience from the back. At 8.15, the door opened and a woman stepped out. Not a woman, a goddess. There were gasps. Some held up their cell phones, clicking furiously. One person fainted. The goddess was truly exceptional. Her proportions were perfect, golden. With the sun shining on her, she glowed. She raised her arms and gathered something around her out of the air droplets of water. They began to collect and swirl around her covering, her, covering her nakedness. Then she began to rise, a brown Botticelli. She rested a moment on the roof of the cottage, crouching near the painted finial. A cool fog began to descend into the valley. She called down to them. Her voice rang across the courtyard. The birds in the Corfi were silent. What is truth? What is, what is manipulated? What you crave is the aesthetic, the light flickering on Plato's cave, projections. You are blind, ego-driven and false. These shadows won't last. And then she directed her gaze at Uunuku, who stood there with tears drinking down his face. Her mist turned to a smouldering grey, a smog. True and infinite love was right in front of you and you squandered it. You didn't play by the rules and these are the consequences. You could have been a beautiful whānau. You blew a unuku, e kore e mauri, e hokia. Katie looked over at Unuku, his face collapsing as he heard the word family and saw the way Hine Pukuhurangi held her belly protectively. He moaned, comprehension washing over him. She was carrying their unborn child. Too late. Too late. His face showed that he would never see the baby or her again. Uunuku quite lost his shit then. He supplicated to begin with. Come down, I'm sorry, please come back. And then he tried scaling the veranda, grabbing for the sagging roof. It crumpled. The whole thing fell around him in a heap leaving him covered in timber and rotting debris. His parents self-consciously stepped forward to help him. Uunuku spat at them, his eyes wild, rolling around in his head, unfocused. His parents backed away, scared. It was quite uncomfortable watching all this. Fascinating. Katie almost felt guilty for instigating it. Almost, not quite. Suddenly, Hine Pukuhurangi broke out in a karanga and the hair on Katie's head and neck prickled. The air shimmered around them as the words rose and fell. Hine Pukuhurangi sang in her ancient Atua language and the words were like warm oil entering their ears, trickling down to their chests. The vibrational frequency of her voice began opening up the realm to her homeland above. And then when she was done, without a glance back, she rose into the sky towards her waiting family, evaporated. Those who heard Hine Pukuhurangi that day were blessed. Her song was a fast track to ascension. Their hearts split open and the film over their eyes were wiped clear. They became awakened. Katie reached up to the clearing sky and smiled. She beamed at those around her. They smiled back, joyful tears overflowing. Everywhere, everywhere, love and light. 
Uenuku was impervious to the song he made to leave. His parents tried to reason with him, begged him to stay. With their new insight, they could finally understand how badly they had hurt him. His mother even laid down on the ground at his feet to show how much she truly loved him. He walked right over her and out the gate. He never saw them again. He searched for Henepukuhurangi. He scaled the mist-covered ranges of the Uruweras, trudged through the bruma spray of west coast beaches, sat for days near waterfalls in the remote Catlins, breathed in the toxic steam of White Island. And he returned again and again to the plaza where they met. His back bent and his hair turned white, and yet he still looked. With age, he began to look more deeply. He meditated for days, his body almost turning to stone, to dust. His longing became a tunnel, a gate, back and forth through time, through light. Time was no barrier to his yearning. He was a time traveller, fueled by hope and desire. He kept on looking. One day he reached so far back with his mind that Anginui saw this feeble soul and took pity on him. He knew how it felt to be torn away from the one who owns your heart. He transformed Uenuku into his fullest potentiality, pulled from him the colours that always were inside him, the latent spectrum, water droplets dispersed and reflected. A bridge appeared, spanning time and space. Finally, he would be near her again. They could be together into the infinite. The monorail carried the tour group high above the Arahuta River, moving fast. Ahua sat with her nose hongied to the glass, watching the enormous creature below. Even a week into the luxury tour, she still couldn't quite believe what she was seeing. The carriage doors opened. Kia ora a familiar voice announced. <clears throat> Ahua and the other tourists turned from the window. Tumuaki stood in the aisle in his Ngaitahu tour guide's kiwi feather cloak. Welcome to the last day of Te Arapautini, he said. If you've just joined us, gather round. Guests clustered around Tumuaki. Our story today comes to us from Tatipani O'Regan, and it begins on Tuhua Island in the Bay of Plenty. Now, one day Pautini, the guardian tanifa of Ponami, was hiding out there from his nemesis, Fatipu who's the guardian tanifa of Grindstone. And from his corner of the bay, Potini spied a beautiful wahine bathing. Her name was Waitaiki, and Potini snatched her up, and he sped across the ocean to Tahanga on the Coromandel Peninsula. Now, Waitaiki's husband, Tama'ahua, found her kākahu discarded by the water, and he knew that something terrible had happened. And so... With his magic teka-teka pointed to Tahanga, he and his men paddled to the mainland at full speed. 
but all they found were the ashes of Potini's fire. He had taken Waitaiki south to Whangamata, and so a great chase began. Turangitoto, Whangamoa, Aonetahua, all the way down the country until Potini was finally cornered right here in the Arahura. Now, Potini hatched a desperate plan. He transformed Waitaiki into his own essence, Ponamu, and then he laid her in the river. She became the mother and the mother load of Greenstone. And Potini then slipped past Tamaahua out to the coast to Tai Potini, where he guards her still. And when Tamaahua arrived, he tangied over his wife's body, and then before heading home, he named two mountains. The first is Tuhua, after their island home. That's it, there. Ahua and the others followed his pointing finger to the majestic mountain rising outside the monorail windows on their right. The second mountain, Tumuaki went on, he named for himself so he could watch over his beloved. <clears throat> the great chief, and then when he went back to Tuhua where he remarried and where his descendants dreamed of Utu, Ahua thought. The 28-year-old martial arts expert returned her gaze to the window, looking down at the enormous tanifa scrambling up the riverbed below. Potini's dark green scales glowed against the wet stone, and as he leapt from pool to pool, his claws struck sparks off the boulders and dislodged small trees, and Waitaiki's naked form clung to his back. He's realistic, isn't he? Ahua looked up from the window again. Tumuaki was standing right there, watching her with his quick brown eyes. Realistic, she said with a broad grin. I'd say magical. Grab a seat. Tumuaki settled into the recliner opposite. He was perhaps 22, with an athlete's build. Ahua watched the faint smile on his inked lips, remembering their taste from last night. They both turned to the window, suddenly shy only to find themselves watching Waitaiki's naked figure crouching low on Potini's back. I, can't, I still can't believe it's all robotics, Ahua murmured. Even better than the real thing, Tumuaki said, and the finale this afternoon will blow your mind. It's already been blown, she said, and he had the decency to blush. Uh, you, you done any other Ngaitahu tourism trips, he asked. I'd love to go whale watching, she said. Yeah, they sighted a real whale last week, Tumuaki said. Ah, bullshit. <laughs> Tumuaki grinned. Maybe they're robots, maybe they're not. How about we... Ahua's phone chimed. It's time, her kaitiaki spoke in her ear. Excuse me, she said. I'll be right back. Ahua passed through the boutique car, then paused outside the day spa. The door at the end of the corridor hissed open, and a man in his late 40s and travelling clothes came and stood casually next to her at the window. Deep, hand-tapped tāmoko of Ngaitahu design and rank framed his handsome face. Ko waikwe, she murmured. Tama, ko koe, ahua. You get ashore, okay? Timed it perfectly between patrols, he said. But ahua heard hesitation. And? He grimaced. A fisherman spotted us at the river mouth. Ahua pictured the black zodiac skimming up the Arahura River in the dark a lantern gleaming on the bank, and a figure standing abruptly, peering into the dark. What happened? she asked. Kiatupato, her kaitiaki, whispered in her ear as the doors at the end of the corridor slid open. Two tour guides passed. Oh, you know, we had a few beers, Thomas said. Kia ora, the guide said. One of them looked intently at Thomas Moko. The designs looked old, but they'd been lasered on by a corrupt southern tohonga just a month ago. But they seemed to be working. The guide smiled, and Thomas smiled back. Yeah, we had a good catch-up, he continued. You know, how's Farnoa doing? The guides entered the day spa. And then I shot him in the face, Thomas said, quietly. His eyes were cold. You? No issues coming in the front door? None, she lied. After a week spent tracing Potini and Waitaiki's animatronic adventure through the North Island on New Year's Day 2038, Ahua had finally landed in Ngaitahu territory at Mawhera. It had been 16 years since the new New Zealand wars, but border security between the sovereign tribal territories was still tight. At customs, Ahua summoned all of her training to keep her heart rate steady. She stepped up to the desk for her iris scan, and her entire whakapapa lit up the screen in a glowing grid. Her mother's lines, the ones she knew, 
were from her home on Tuhua, but the system automatically highlighted her father's Ngaitahue ancestry. This was why she had been chosen to infiltrate the tour. She tried not to hold her breath. But then the official leaned into Hongi, and Ahua exhaled with relief. No mai, haramai, toti mai, he said. This is your first time home. Yeah, I'm here to find my southern roots, she said. Sweet, the official said. And your roots are, the screen shifted. And the names of Ahua's ancestors, all of them, spread across a satellite map of Te Waipounamu, showing where each of them had lived and died. In Arahuda, the official said, great choice with the Potini tour. Follow the green line to Wharenui Toru. Your flight's porphyry starts in 10 minutes. The carved gate opened. Ahua stepped onto Ngaitahu soil. She was in.
You've been listening to a podcast from the 2019 Auckland Writers' Festival. You can find a range of other festival talks, interviews and discussions on iTunes, SoundCloud and on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.